We are doing the uh, seven final words of Jesus from the cross, and so far we've done four. Today we're going to do sayings five and six together, and then next Sunday will be kind of an odd mix, which in some sense very much typifies what happened to Jesus the last week of his life, because we will do the seventh saying of Jesus from the cross, but we'll also be celebrating Palm Sunday. So the music will be very upbeat. So what we've seen so far is this. The first word was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, a word of forgiveness. The second word was, today you will be with me in paradise, spoken to one of the two thieves or criminals on the cross. That was a word of salvation. The third word was to his mother, woman, behold your son, and I think she's referring to John. I told you last week I shouldn't have the son capitalized, but I keep, that's a minor thing and I keep forgetting to correct that. And then he says to John, his apostle, I think also likely his cousin, behold your mother, it's a word of affection. So the first three words are all spoken on behalf of others. He's the one dying on a cross. After which there's three hours of darkness. And so far as we know, Jesus is silent. And then last week, At the end of those three hours, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a word of dereliction uh, or a word of abandonment. Uh, Dereliction meaning abandonment, meaning the Father is absent. Uh, He has no awareness or benefit from his Father who he has lived in perfect obedience to his entire life. This morning where we're at is in John's Gospel And within the span of three verses, Jesus says, after that, he says, I thirst, and he says, it is finished. So we're going to do those two together. John's Gospel, chapter 19, Pew Bible, page 906, if you're using a Pew Bible. And because I did that workshop yesterday, my PowerPoint's a little more minimal, so it'll require a little more work on your part to keep up. Uh, looking up Bible references, I couldn't, didn't have time to put as many on the screen. Uh, but to start off, I'm going to read, beginning in verse 28, I'm actually going to continue through verse 37. Our real focus of attention is just 28, 29, and 30, but uh, it's a good time to go ahead and read a little bit past that, and then we'll back up and focus on those two words of Christ from the cross. It reads like this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, 
that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. By the way, one little leftover from last week. I think Janice, you asked me, was it about uh, the crucifixion? What the guy said at the conference that we went to, I'll take his word for it. He said crucifixion was invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. So it predated the Romans quite a bit. The Persians invented it. And by perfected by the Romans, it means they figured out a way to make it excruciatingly painful as long as possible. That's what they mean by perfected. So that a typical crucifixion could last days. It was intended to last days. But as we just read in this story, which reminded me of that, the Jews don't want any bodies on the cross uh, for Passover and for a Sabbath. And so they ask that these bodies, these these persons hanging on a cross would be killed because of their own religiosity. So there you have it. So those are the verses we just read. I want to draw attention to what what was fulfilled by Scripture because that seems to be an emphasis in, in all of the Gospels. And in those verses I just read, it's certainly an emphasis now in this closing scene uh, of Jesus' fifth and sixth words from the cross. And then in John's Gospel, he breathes his last. And then after that, we see Scripture being fulfilled. It says, not one of his bones will be broken. That is in reference to the original Jewish Passover where the Israelites came out of Egypt and that was the first Passover because an angel from the Lord was sent to slay all the firstborn in all the land of Egypt. But the Jews took the blood of a lamb and spread it on their doorpost, their lintel, and the angel of death passed over them. But that lamb that was taken and slain, not a... Not a any of its bones was to be broken. And Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and not one of his bones was broken. So it's a fulfillment of the original Passover. The second fulfillment immediately after is, it says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. His bones aren't broken, but his side is pierced with a spear. And immediately it says, blood and water came out. And this is kind of interesting that this is a fulfillment of Scripture because it's not an entire fulfillment of Scripture. His side was pierced, but the quote is from Zechariah chapter 12 where it says, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And the nation of Israel is not mourning for Jesus on the cross. But when he comes back the second time, They will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And Zechariah goes through these categories. Who's going to mourn? And the essence is, they all mourn. From the greatest to the least. From the priest to the common people. They all of Israel will mourn for him. So it's a fulfillment in the sense that Zechariah said there had to be a piercing... But it's not yet a complete fulfillment because Israel's not mourning. And I know it's in the future because it's quoted again or it's referred to again in Revelation chapter 1, the last book written in the New Testament, a book that culminates in the coming, uh, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it talks about looking on him whom they have pierced. 
So you've got those two fulfillments. Before that, back in verse 28, this question, what did Jesus know? And to what degree did it contribute to his saying, I thirst? Verse 28 reads again, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. What did he know? What did he know? Well, on one hand, he knows not all scripture has entirely been fulfilled because after he dies, we just saw two more scriptures that are fulfilled. So what he knows is all of scripture that needed to be fulfilled up to this point had been fulfilled. He knew that those three hours of darkness, what needed to happen during those three hours of darkness, where I think he was actually serving as the atonement, where it was the time when he was estranged from his father, where he was the bearer of sin, and he was the perfect sacrifice, he knew after that three hours, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it was over. It had all been fulfilled. It was accomplished. He knew up until that point, it was over. And then he said, I thirst. And so, what's the relationship between what he knew had already happened and what the next words were that came out of his mouth? Did he know that he was fulfilling Scripture then? Uh, What's the relationship between the two? Was he conscious of it? Or did he say it, and in fact, it happened to be a fulfillment of Scripture? So the ESV Bible kind of tips its hands, uh, the translators to put it together, because it reads this way. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. And then in parentheses, it's put by John the Gospel writer, oh, this was to fulfill Scripture. So those parentheses suggest it kind of makes it vague whether Jesus knew exactly that's why he said that. We know he said it, and John says, oh, and this fulfilled Scripture too. But in what I researched, most good Bible scholars, conservative Bible scholars, and actually a good number of other translations of the Bible, English translation, would say those parentheses really shouldn't be there. Uh, In the Greek text, what John would have written, there are no parentheses. Uh, It's not necessarily wrong that in a translation you would put them there because there's times everybody agrees it is a parenthetical thought added by the writer. So that does happen in the Bible. But from what I saw, most would say those parentheses really don't belong there. And it kind of changes the emphasis of what Jesus did in this fifth word when he says, I thirst if you remove them, which I'll do. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. It's kind of interesting, with that emphasis, it's not just he said it, oh, and it fulfilled Scripture, but Jesus consciously recognizes Everything he's done up to this point that needed to be a fulfillment of Scripture had taken place. But there were still some things left on the table. One of which was required him saying, I thirst. And so in order to fulfill Scripture, Jesus consciously said, 
I thirst. So that it's a, a fulfillment of several possibilities. One would be Psalm 22, where Jesus, the word immediately before that is the verse 1 of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the way some commentators view it is, is Jesus had quoted verse 1, and all of the psalm, perhaps in his own mind, or maybe maybe even verbally he spoke, was speaking the entire psalm. But what the gospel writer wanted you to know, Matthew and Mark, all they wanted you to know was this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he's quoting the psalm in his own mind, or however he happens to be doing it, then he comes to the point where he, he makes it plain, his I thirst is in reference to verses 14 and 15, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. I thirst. It's a fulfillment of verses 14 and 15 of the same psalm where the previous word had come out of. That's a good possibility. And it may be included in the answer because it may be that Jesus saying he thirsts isn't meant to think of only one passage of Scripture, but several. Because the second passage would be Psalm 69, which reads, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Which is exactly what happened to Jesus when he said, I thirst. They gave him sour wine, uh, a wine mixed with vinegar, to drink. And Jesus knows that prophecy, that reference has to be fulfilled. And they're not going to give him that to drink unless he cries out, I thirst. So he does. And they do. And it's all in fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus' thirst is an evidence of his humanity. Uh, What Jesus knows he has to say in order to fulfill Scripture is in some fashion an evidence or a demonstration of his deity. And we've got many, most of the time when people read the Gospels, what they see are these remarkable instances that demonstrate his deity. The blind see, the deaf walk, the lepers are cleansed. On several instances, the dead are raised. He teaches with authority. All these demonstrations of this is God come to earth. But he's also fully human. I love a song that we sing in Good News Club. It's kind of a a really fun stereo song. Uh, And I'm sure we'll be doing it this summer for VBS because our VBS is going to be focused on, on the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and how the Son is fully God and He's fully man together at the same time. One without compromising the other. The church, because the church and Christians in general always are in danger of two errors, and they're opposite errors. And this is actually under different for different reasons. I was teaching the same thing at the workshop yesterday in Springfield. That the church is always in danger of two errors, and it's very easy to criticize the error that you would never fall prey to. I would never be so liberal as to think Jesus isn't God. I was raised to believe he's God. I'm convinced by Scripture Jesus is God. But sometimes we downplay that he's also fully human. And he got weary. And he got thirsty. And he was hungry. Those things were true too. 
There's some liberal churches that fully play up his humanity, but they deny his deity. Other churches are very convinced of his deity, but they downplay his humanity because they don't want to be like those liberal churches. They don't want anybody to think that I'm, I, I'm talking about his humanity in such a way that you would question whether I believe Jesus is fully God. I mean, it happens all the time if, once you become aware of it. Um, you know, I don't know if it helps to give other examples outside of this context. You know, the whole so- social justice and the gospel issue is such a hot topic in, in American culture among evangelical churches. And some churches have so embraced this, this, if you want to call it wokeness or the social gospel or, or being involved in social activities. They're so into that and other churches are so repelled by that. And the churches that are very repelled, which is more along probably our lines, that I, I think we believe in a gospel, the, the most important essence of the gospel is that Christ came to take away sin. And however society might be improved by anybody, nobody's problem is really being solved unless Jesus takes away sin. But at the same time, the church that that recognizes that's the gospel may not want to be involved in certain social activities because we don't want to be mistaken for them. And I think that's unfortunate. Because I think the church can be involved in, in relief in different areas. We've always been that way. Our church has always been involved with the New Life Crisis Pregnancy Center. That's a social issue. And I think the church can be called to that among many issues. But there's only one primary issue. You know, it's the same thing I grew up Lutheran, which you know, for the first 10 or 12 years of my life, then we transitioned Baptist. And, and the Baptist, when I was Baptist, and it was... My heritage was largely good there, too. I learned a lot of really good things. But it was very clear if you were Baptist, you were not charismatic. Because charismatics did things Baptists did not agree with. And charismatics did things that were just, they seemed off the charts, off the table. So in Baptist churches, we didn't, we didn't, I mean, you just didn't raise your hand. And you hardly talked about the Holy Spirit. I mean, you just had to be really careful because you weren't them. And you were to make it clear you weren't them. But the truth of the matter is, the reason why we're a church is because God has poured out his Holy Spirit. And if he doesn't pour out his Holy Spirit, there is no church. There is no fellowship, at least not as we know it. Not that we have the life of Christ in us and that we're brought together by the grace of Christ. So there's always two errors. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about that, how uh, the devil doesn't care which error you fall into so long as you're in one of those ditches. And the truth is somewhere more in the middle. So Jesus is fully human on that cross. He will fully die. He's also fully God on that cross. While everyone else is unconsciously fulfilling Scripture, that is God's redemptive purposes, Jesus consciously knows and participates in fulfilling Scripture. Jesus says, I thirst because he means to fulfill Scripture. Somebody goes and gets him sour wine. They don't think, oh, that's right. We almost forgot the scripture. We need to fulfill this. They just do it. Jesus has a his side pierced because it's a fulfillment of scripture. But they didn't do it thinking they were fulfilling scripture. They didn't crucify him thinking, well, the scripture has to be fulfilled. There's no, We have no choice in this. They didn't. 
mock him and scorn him, thinking scripture had to be fulfilled after all. They did it because they wanted to. Jesus is the only one in this situation that knows exactly what's transpiring. He's fully involved in it because he's come to accomplish the will of his father, even by death on a cross. And it doesn't make anyone any less culpable or guilty, though they're participating unwittingly in God's plan, which was set in place before the world was ever spoken into existence. You'll learn more about that when we get to Ephesians. Interestingly, thirst is an image used in the Bible to depict both Jesus' humanity and his deity. In saying that, I don't mean that Jesus' thirst on the cross is a depiction of his deity. His thirst on the cross is only a depiction of his humanity. But thirst in the Bible is not merely an image of our humanity... Thirst in the Bible is also an image of our of something higher than that. Because the things that we think we thirst after only represent a deeper thirst that only God can satisfy. And so, in other words, to flesh this out a little bit, in John's Gospel, I'm not going to have you turn to all these places, but you're familiar in John's Gospel, Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. I'll read to you those verses. If I can find them, they go like this. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's a, there's a water welling up to eternal life. And if all you do is drink from this this well that your father Jacob dug, you'll come back again because you're thirsty. If you think your thirst will be satisfied in a relationship, in a job, in a career, in your finances, in your retirements and investments, and whatever, if that's where you think your thirst will be satisfied, you know what? You'll be looking for another well sooner or later because it will not be satisfied there. And Jesus says, I can satisfy your thirst in a way that nothing in this world you will ever find is satisfied. The same thing is found in chapter 6. John's Gospel, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, well, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You'll never hunger. You'll never thirst. He's not in that sense talking about a a human thirst, a, a physical thirst that can be satisfied by tangible things like we're used to chasing. He's talking about a thirst that leads to everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins, peace with God. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The same thing is found in John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts. Right now on the cross in John 19, Jesus thirsts physically so that we would never thirst spiritually. His throat is dry and parched physically as he's the sin bearer 
so that we would never be held accountable for our sins. All those that put their faith in Christ will never thirst. Both are true at the same time. Finished is used twice in these verses. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Skipping verse 29. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Same word. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word thirst there is a Greek word. It means to finish, complete, fulfill, accomplish, pay. It's used in a variety of ways, a variety of senses. I've got accomplish highlighted because I think it's, it more closely represents what the word means. Because in my mind, there's quite a difference between, or potentially quite a difference, between saying you finish something and you accomplish something. I finished lots of tests in school. I can't say that I accomplished a whole lot. You can turn in the test and say, and the teacher's like, well, you finished? I'm like, yeah, believe it or not, I'm finished. Like, there it is. I've got all the little slots filled in, but I'm not going to say I've accomplished a whole lot. But I did finish it. You know, I might, uh, like if I were to run a race, I probably wouldn't finish. But let's, let's give me the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that I actually finished the race. I didn't accomplish much. You know, like, they've probably removed, like, the clock ticker that says, you know, what your time was or all of that, like everybody's gone. And I might be able to say at the end of the day, well, yeah, I finished, but you don't want to hear about my time. Uh, I, I didn't accomplish very much in finishing. So I, w- I would prefer if instead of the word finished, it said after this, Jesus knowing that all was now accomplished. He didn't just finish. He accomplished what he was set out to do. He accomplished what scripture said had to happen. And when he'd received the sour wine, he said, it's accomplished, not just finished. It's accomplished. I think there's a difference. When uh, the word is used in secular Greek and classical Greek in lots of situations, it's spoken by a servant. He's assigned a task. And the And whoever has assigned the servant to task once more than, oh, I finished. I mean, how many parents have ever had their kid in school, you know, especially if you've homeschooled, and and you've given them a task, and they're like, I'm finished. And you're like, yeah, there's no way you'd finish that job in that amount of time. You're not really, you didn't accomplish what I intended for you to accomplish. You know, the paper, the... However many paragraphs, I mean, I don't know what you called finish, but it's not accomplished. It's not what I had in mind. Other examples would be a priest examining an animal sacrifice. Uh, He's looking for a lamb without spot or blemish. And when he finds the right lamb without spot or blemish, he's like, accomplished. It's not just any old lamb will do, but the right lamb. And it's accomplished. Uh, a craftsman, a painter, a sculptor. You know, he doesn't just finish the job. He accomplishes what he set out to do, what he had in mind to do. It's arrived at a state of perfection, fulfillment, completion. Uh, I used to teach, uh, I think Ryan was the most difficult in, in writing. Ryan's the best writer uh, by far, like in some ways he's far surpassed me in being able to write because he's so well read, partly. But I remember because Ryan also of his personality, when he did a job, he wanted to get it done. 
hit it hard and fast and he's done. And I would have to teach him writing is a, is a process. You don't write a paper and you're done the first time. It's a process. After you've written the paper, you go through it. You find out what needs to be corrected, what is not a, what, where it's a rough transition. And English is one of the few things that I, you know, did fairly well in in school. Like math and science, guys are supposed to be good at math and science. We would be in the poorhouse if it were up, to, if my career depended on math and science. But English, I've always been pretty good at. And it's largely because of a, this is totally rambling, but it's a, a Lutheran school teacher when I was at, in junior high at the Lutheran school, LSA. Uh, her name was Miss Ballman back then. She got married and changed her name. And, uh, and then years later when the boys were, one year at LSA, uh, she was, it was her last year as a teacher and I thanked her. I said, I learned more from you about English than I ever learned in high school or I ever learned in college. She was a phenomenal teacher and, and it helped because it gave me a career <laughs> to some extent. Uh, so anyway, this, this word finished, it's, it's accomplished. It's used 28 times in the New Testament, exactly as that as it's used here. There's variations of that word, which is essentially the same. But exactly as it's found here, it's found 28 times in the New Testament. The first time it's ever used in, is in Matthew's Gospel. You don't need to turn here either. But in Matthew's Gospel, it's the very end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which uh, I haven't revisited it lately. So whether he taught all of that all at once, or whether it's a compilation of what Jesus taught in many given situations, I'm not going to really try to weigh into that right now. I'm going to go with this is what he taught at this specific time, but I'm not going to quibble about that. But at any rate, it's in chapter 5, all of Matthew 5, it's in all of Matthew 6, it's in Matthew 7. And finally, at the end of Matthew 7, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When it says Jesus finished these sayings, I don't think it's like Jesus ran out of things to say. Or the people got so tired, he's like, ah, I'm finished. I think he accomplished everything he set out to do. He had in mind what he meant to communicate to these crowds. He said everything that needed to be said, he accomplished what he set out to do, and he finished. I mean, that's a good time for anybody that's speaking, like me right now. You know, when I've said all that needs to be, all I've set out to do, just finish. Wrap it up. Let us go. You know, accomplish what you set out to do and, and don't just keep rambling to fill up time, to fill up ear space. When you've accomplished what you've set out to do, bring it to an end. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He accomplished what he meant to accomplish when he preached. He's accomplishing what he means to accomplish as he dies on a cross. In the Greek, it's just one little word. In our English, it's three. It is finished. But in the Greek, it's just one word. Accomplished. Fulfilled. Or finished. Sometimes the briefest of words dramatically alters the direction of your life. If you happen to be in a courtroom situation and the judge pounds his gavel and says, Guilty. The direction of your life just changed. Or if he says two words, not guilty, or he could say innocent, but I don't think they do. But if he says innocent, that's a completely different tra trajectory. 
In a baseball game, if the umpire says strike, it's a big difference from ball. Or fair, fair, or foul. It's a big difference. Could change the outcome of the game. Could change who goes to the playoffs. Could change who wins the World Series. One word. Sometimes words, one word, can make such a difference. A word of affirmation. A word of criticism. One builds up, one tears down. One word can make such a difference. In this moment, one word, Jesus says, accomplished, fulfilled. What did Jesus finish? Times two. That is, I'm going to give you one answer, and then I'm going to back up and give you a second answer. Not that they're opposed to one another. They're both true. One's a little more general. One's a little more specific. Jesus says accomplished. What did he accomplish? The first answer is Jesus finished everything that the Father had given him to do and all that was prophesied in Scripture concerning his first coming. Everything the Father had given him to do, he finished. He accomplished it all. This goes back It goes back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. The first time Jesus has ever, his words are ever recorded was when he was 12 years old. We looked at this already for different reasons. But his parents search for him after several days. And Jesus says to his parents, uh, didn't you know I had to be about my father's? Well, most of our Bibles probably rightly read, didn't you know I had to be about my, in my father's house? But the old King James and the new King James says, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? And the Greek is unclear because the Greek literally says, he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in the of my father? I had to be in the of my father. It doesn't say house or business. And so translators have to supply, well, what did he mean? And so most translators, and they're probably right, mean I had to be in my father's house. But I kind of like business. Because Jesus is 12 years old saying, you know what? I'm here to do the business of my father. And on the cross, he says, it's accomplished. He's been doing his father's business since he was a boy. And it's accomplished. In John chapter 4, verse 31 This is right after the discussion with the Samaritan woman where they talked about thirst. It says the disciples came back from town. They they were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Accomplish, same word. I came to finish my Father's work, to do my Father's will. He was doing it when he was 12. And in that discussion with Samaritan woman, which seemed very inappropriate at the time to the disciples, it seemed like an inopportune moment, Jesus is doing his Father's work in having that discussion with that woman at that time. The same thing in John chapter 5. Jesus says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. That's John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. Same word. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father sent me. I'm doing my Father's work. And it's upsetting a lot of people. But that's why he came. 
I was sent to do my father's work. But that work will never be accomplished only by his teaching. And that work will never be accomplished by only making blind people see. And that work will never be accomplished by drying tears. That work to be accomplished requires more than teaching and healing and miraculous signs. And so, you've got Luke chapter 12 and 18 and John 17. Go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I will. So you're in John's gospel. Just go back one gospel previous, prior. Luke's gospel, chapter 12. Then we'll look at Luke 18. Then we'll go back to John. And the, the word accomplished is used in each one of these passages. Because he says, I came, to, I came to accomplish my Father's will. And in his teaching, he's accomplishing his Father's will. In his miraculous healings, he's accomplishing his Father's will. But it requires more than that. So in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. It's not accomplished yet. He's still speaking about it. It needs to be accomplished. It's a baptism that needs to be accomplished. He's not talking about his water baptism. That has been accomplished. He's talking about the baptism of his death. It needs to be accomplished. His Father's will cannot be accomplished until he's baptized in death, until he's fully embraced by his sufferings and his obedience even unto death on a cross. Luke chapter 18. Go from Luke 12 to Luke 18. This is probably a little more familiar because he said this on a number of occasions. He's speaking to his 12 disciples, the apostles. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be finished, accomplished, fulfilled. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. But Jesus said it all had to be accomplished. All that had to be, to do his father's will, all of that suffering had to be accomplished too. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is Jesus. Uh, we talk about the Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. He taught His disciples how to pray, which we can use as a model. But the Lord's own prayer, for the most part, we know there are times Jesus went aside to pray, but we're not told what He prayed. We know exactly what He prayed in John's Gospel, chapter 17, hours before His, crucif- his arrest and mocking and crucifixion. Here is literally the Lord's Prayer. I won't read the entire thing. It would be too long. But in John chapter 17, it starts like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And it goes on. Jesus speaks of of doing his Father's will in these episodes of accomplishment. But for it all to be accomplished, it requires his death on a cross, which takes us back to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. So the first answer is he accomplished the work that his Father had given him to do. He accomplished all that the prophets said that he would do. The second go around is to what Jesus finished or accomplished would be this. Jesus finished. He brought to a satisfying completion because that's behind, that's the idea behind accomplishment. If I turn in my test and I'm like, I accomplished the test. I have a, a good feeling, a, a sense of accomplishment. I set out what I intended to do. Jesus brought to a satisfying completion everything required by the law for righteousness by his own perfect obedience. This is the positive righteousness of Christ. Everything that God says, this is what somebody holy does. If you're going to walk and live in obedience to me, you do these things and you don't do these things. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He fulfilled it. He accomplished it all. If the tests were a 10,000 you know, question near chat test. He scored a 10,000. He never sinned. He knew no sin. He perfectly brought to a satisfying completion every demand of righteousness that God ever laid on the Israelites. That's what he accomplished, number one. Secondly, he brought to a satisfying completion everything demanded by the law for disobedience by his perfect submission to crucifixion. Jesus lived in perfect obedience. And the law says one thing about that. Jesus also bore all the consequences of disobedience because the law says something about that. The soul that sins shall surely die. So Jesus bore all that the law required of somebody who is a lawbreaker. He died a criminal's death on a cross. Though he himself had positively kept all the that the law required for righteousness. So how is it the only one holy, perfectly righteous, bears fully all the consequences of breaking God's law, except that he becomes the sinner's substitute? He bears sin, not his own, so that we would receive righteousness, not our own. Thirdly, Jesus brought to a satisfying completion everything pictured by the law's priestly system. By becoming a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better substitute. Because the law had sacrifices, it had priests. Animals were substituted for sinners. And Jesus became better in every way. He fulfilled and accomplished all that the law could ever hope or dream to accomplish in what it pictured. Lastly, fourthly, he brought to a satisfying completion everything required by God for salvation by redeeming by justifying, by reconciling sinners. Christ being the Redeemer, the picture is of a marketplace where you go into the marketplace and you purchase out of the marketplace something to possess for yourself. Christ went into the marketplace and he purchased sinners given to him by his Father unto himself, saved by grace through faith. 
The second image of justification is legal. So it's from a marketplace to a courtroom. And in the courtroom, sinners can be declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness. They can be declared not more than not guilty, righteous, but not guilty because of what Christ did. And then from a marketplace to a courtroom to the word reconciliation has to do with a community. It has to do with family. It has to do with, uh, for, for, uh, in, in the New Testament, it would be the church. Reconciliation is to be restored into right relationship. Not just purchased, not just declared righteous, but to be brought into right relationship with the Holy God. Reconciled to God because of Him. Everything that God required, everything that God required in His law, everything that God revealed in the priestly system, all brought to a satisfying conclusion by Christ's death on a cross. I'm going to add underneath that a man named Anselm of Canterbury, 11th century theologian, who if you're not familiar with him, he's positively fascinating. His book that he wrote, well, he wrote a number of things, but the one that he wrote that's most notable is translated, Why the God-Man? Why the God-Man? And I don't have time, I'm really out of time, and I need to accomplish what I set out to accomplish. But, but Anselm, what he did was he clarified what does it mean that Christ died on a cross? Who was he and why did he die? Because one of the theories that had become very popular by the 11th century is called the ransom theory. And the ransom theory is that Christ died on a cross to pay a ransom to the devil to win back sinners to God. And Anselm said... That, I do not see that in Scripture. I think you're giving the devil way too much credit, and you're downplaying the eternal per- redemptive purposes of God set in place from before the foundation of the world. He really objected to that idea. And he, he, he proposed or he clarified uh, uh, what has come to be known as a penal substitute. Christ bore sin, not his own, so that we would receive righteousness, not our own. That the... I'll put it in his words pretty closely. He wrote this. This is translated. Man's debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. It's our debt, but only God can pay the debt. So God became man to pay our debt so that we would be reconciled to his Father. And that, my friends, is what Christ accomplished on the cross. And he was able to say, accomplished, fulfilled, done, finished. What are your comments and questions? Why three hours? That's a good question. I have... It it could be, and I have no idea. Um, Why three hours, not one hour... I mean, an instant, I think if it were an instant, you, you know, you'd kind of think like, you know, it re- our sin requires more than an instant. We're an, an instant feeling abandoned by the Father. But why three hours? I have no idea why three hours. I think that's part of the mystery. I think, you know, I didn't go into it last week, but Wayne Grudem, who I highly respect, theologian, I mean, he would say when Christ cried out, why, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that it has... Less reference, like he knew what he was accomplishing. He, I mean, he came to do his father's will, but it's like, why so long? Like he doesn't know when the end is. He doesn't know that at three hours, you know, that it's finished. 
he kind of explains that, whether he's right or wrong. I don't know. I think that's part of the mystery. Why three hours? I don't know. And there may be a really good reason I'm just completely ignorant of. Like, why three hours? I mean, you could try to figure out a thing like whatever, what else happened in the Bible that was three hours long. You know, I could come up with a crazy theory. Adam and Eve were only in righteousness three hours, and then they, you know, disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden fruit. That, it couldn't possibly be true, I don't think, for good reasons, but they'd make a great little theory. <laughs> uh, who was it that had a, Terry? I think not, I think there are there is significance to numbers in scripture, but I think it's also easy to make too much of it where the scripture doesn't actually connect the dots for me. So I I think there's a lot of mystery in those three hours. Jesus didn't say anything. I think that is partly meant to picture or communicate to us. There's a mystery in Christ being the sin bearer that we just can't understand. <laughs> 